when I had chosen that hymn for this evening, and then I noted that the choir was singing that piece this morning, I thought, well, maybe I should change it. And I thought, no, <laughs> no, that's uh, it's perhaps one of the, the great pieces we sing at this time of the year, especially. I sometimes imagine Simeon singing these words in all of his anticipation that the Christ should come. And the weaving in of Old Testament prophecy and language of the great hope that there is. And here we are, the other side of the cross, and we can truly rejoice as he did when he saw not the finished work, but he did see the infant Christ, and still his heart was made to burst with joy. Turn, if you would, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Isaiah 50, the 50th chapter of Isaiah. As I said this morning, for those who are joining with us tonight, I am continuing in the series that I commenced some years ago in moving through the texts of Handel's Messiah. And there's a whole history there. It wasn't Handel who came up with the texts, so there was Jensen, and you can read about that. And just the, you really have a coming together of genius for what is quite an unusual piece of, of music in terms of the history of music that has been made. And just as Dr. Overley was saying, that since it first um, was ever publicly uh, put before people and performed, uh, it has never stopped. It has never kind of gone into the, the annals of um, shadows of history and just been left there. It has continually found uh, a resonating with, with men. And if you, if you have sat under it, if you listened through it and really considered it, you'll understand why. But if you've not done that, again, as I said this morning, I just encourage you at least once in your life to, to move through it and listen to it, and especially with the verses. Just sit and see the verses. And as the, the choir and the, the, the soloists present it with the music, it's, it's quite a moving thing. But it's, it's very... It just depends, really. It's not just the music. You have to seize upon what is being communicated. And there is a sense in which it's, it's really the truth. The music carries it along, but it's the truth. And so tonight we are moving into a text that weaves in with Isaiah 53, verse 3. It's found in Isaiah 50, verse 6. But we'll read from verse 1, Isaiah 50. I'm going to read from the first verse and see here the Lord's controversy with His people. Isaiah 50 verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom have I put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Just to pause there, the Lord is asking, Is, it, is your problem... Has it come from me? Is, is it me or, or, or what's the issue with this breach in the relationship? And he gives the answer then, Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions 
is your mother put away? Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Amen. We'll end at the close of the chapter. Let's still our hearts in prayer. I encourage you to ask for the Lord's word to you as we come to consider it. Lord, we all need your help. So thankful for the Son of God. He came into this world. It's an amazing thing that God would come into this world. And we might have imagined that he should receive great applause and acclaim and reverence. And as we saw this morning, that was not how it was to be. And we're thankful, as we shall see tonight, that this was no surprise. No surprise to the Son of God. He knew what his condescension entailed. Yet he still gave himself to this great work of saving our souls. Lord, I thank you that many here tonight will never be in hell, that you have stepped in and saved should there be any outside of that number currently, in terms that they are still rebelling, still refusing, still rejecting, 
open their eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to ask you, what is the most terrible or difficult experience that you have volunteered yourself for or to do, what comes to mind? And then to ask you, how does that compare to things you've had to do that you had really no choice in the matter, you were just made to do it? I would imagine that your worst experiences really came upon you not by any choice of your own. You never asked for it, it's just the way things unfolded and you submitted to it because really you had no choice in the matter. In Isaiah 50, we see some of the language points us to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, His experience in His humanity, but not just that. The context reminds us that the one who is going to suffer is also the one who is the sovereign of the world. Look, for example, at verse 2, the end of it, where it speaks of him, Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. This is none other than God Himself, the sovereign of the universe. He has such power that He can do these things and does these things in an ongoing fashion. And yet it's this very one who says in verse 4, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. In verse 5 says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And then in verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. When we consider at this time of the year, the babe in Bethlehem, the events surrounding the incarnation, it can be, I hope it's not the case here, but it can be a time when we simply focus on the particulars surrounding that event with little consideration of the fact this is God. This is God clothed in humanity. This is God who makes and upholds all things and is now dependent on members of His very creation. This is God who is being run out of the country flees to Egypt, returns to live in obscurity, and when finally he begins his ministry is, again, as we saw this morning, despised and rejected of men. Our Lord Jesus knew, as I, as I said, when he was growing and he was learning the Scriptures, he would begin to connect the dots in his humanity, recognizing in his calling and the will of the Father that was upon his life, what he was being called to, the Scripture, the, the teaching, the, the prophecies relating to the Messiah would begin to make greater sense to his humanity in terms of this is what it entails. 
So as he goes through his life, Mark 9, in his ministry, verse 12, he says, It is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. Now, he's in the middle of his ministry, but he's declaring it before, quite a ways before the cross. He is saying, it is written of the Son of Man. The Scriptures reveal this concerning Messiah. Son of Man is a title for Messiah. The Scriptures reveal that he must suffer many things. So he knows, he is well acquainted with what the Scripture teaches. In Luke 18, 31, then he took unto him, then took, then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. So again, he's, he's telling them, I know what has been written. I know what must happen. You must realize that these things are going to happen as well. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. They shall scourge him and put him to death. And it has to be that in that declaration in Luke 18, 31, on the mind of our Savior is at least in part the text that we have here tonight, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. He is going knowing that that's the degree of treatment. His death is no accident. It's not going to be sanitized in any way. It's going to be the most, most horrific experience that man can endure, treated like a criminal, numbered with the transgressors, and those that he, as God, has given life to, seeking to take away his. The prince of life set aside as if he is nothing. When you look at verse 6, the subject that we are instructed in, the particular aspect of Christ in His substitutionary work, that is, boys and girls, when I talk about substitutionary work, I'm talking about Jesus standing in our place. He's taking our place. When we think of Jesus, what's He doing? He's taking our place. He's taking our place. And there are all sorts of facets and aspects of that, but here you see that in taking our place, it's framed in a particular way. It is entirely voluntary. He is giving himself to this. He's not falling into it. Like we said, it's not when you think of the difficult experiences you've gone, to, gone through, the ones that you have been willing to embrace yourself, and then the others that you've been subjected to by no desire of your own. Here you see the Lord Jesus going through the most awful experience, and he is in a voluntary manner embracing it, saying yes. He's saying yes. To all that lies before him. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And you can see this all through the Gospels. You see it when he's there in Gethsemane and he's praying and he's pleading and he's interceding. And then he rises up knowing, knowing that Judas and the soldiers are on the way and he goes and he confronts them. When they inquire, he doesn't hide. He doesn't try to misrepresent. He tells them bluntly, I'm the one you seek for. It's me. He gives himself to it. So we consider then tonight, for a little time, Christ's voluntary surrender 
to suffering, his voluntary surrender to suffering. Note with me then, first, the person smitten. I give my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Who is this one? We've already seen it. This is the Lord. This is Jehovah. This is why through the New Testament you see declarations of it in our Lord Jesus Christ, the various I am statements that John focuses upon. You see other things that are true about the Lord Jesus Christ that can only be true about God. And so you have God made flesh, the one who is Jehovah, speaking here through this, this text, the one who, as I said, he, he can dry up the sea, he can make the rivers a wilderness. He can clothe the heavens with blackness. This is the one who gives his back to the smiters. He is, he is in a position in his condescension, in his humanity, to give himself to this suffering. The entirety of Christ's life was one of suffering. In the sense that he was coming into a world of suffering. I mean, this is true of us all. I mean, you can, you can say it's true for every one of us. No man born in this world escapes suffering. No one. Now, it comes in differing degrees. It comes in waves. Some have it early in life, and it is sustained in various ways and experiences throughout their entire life. Think of someone who maybe early in their life is, has some disability, some physical disability, and, and they have to live with that, and they go through this steady experience of the suffering of this life. Others have their peaks and troughs, so to speak, with deaths of family and sickness and other hardship, poverty, and other experiences on top of that. But there's no escaping it. No escaping it. There's no, there's no point in our lives where it isn't there at all. We're born into this world that has fallen, and immediately the marks of death are upon us. At a cellular level, the biologists, they can tell us that, that death is already marked upon the cell. It can be seen at that level, that this is not going to last forever. And as we age and go on, that, those marks of death become even more evident. Our Savior in order to suffer in this way, of course, had to be given our humanity. And in Hebrews 10, verse 5, we read there of, he's quoting from the Psalm 40, but Hebrews 10, 5 says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So there they the apostle is saying that he's coming into the world. He's coming into the world. In other words, he exists before. He's not like other men. There's an aspect to our Savior, because he is God, that he is coming into the world, coming from heaven, coming from eternity, as it were, into this time, into this experience. But he doesn't come merely in the form of his deity alone. He has to be equipped with humanity. And so that's how the, the Hebrews 10 gives it. A body hast thou prepared me. Now, just as an aside, that's not how you find Psalm 40 written. 
The text in Psalm 40 reads, Sacrifice and offering thou dost not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. And what the, what the psalmist is, is focusing upon is, is that it's not about me offering sacrifices purely. That the Son of God comes in to just do all the religious activity of all the other Jews. He is equipped with a body. He is, he is given this means so that he himself can be the offering. But he says, my ears hast thou opened. And one commentator says, this seems to be a Hebrew idiom which implies God forming ears which allowed a person to receptively hear his word. This also implies the idea that God is the one who has fashioned the body of the speaker. And that's where you have the Septuagint version on how it's read in Hebrews 10, 5, that a body has thou prepared me. Mine ears has thou opened. Mine ears have you created, is the sense. You've given ears. And the implication is giving the ears, you've given the body. And that's why it's given as it is in Hebrews 10. But it gets to the point. It gets to the point. Because in Isaiah 50, we have this one who is God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is beyond comprehension. And yet he condescends entering into this world that he might give himself to suffering. We are told here he gave his back to the smiters. In musing upon this, I thought, in the first place, he gave his back to suffer because we turned our back on God. He gave his back to suffer because we turned our back on God. There's a certain significance to the back that the Lord Jesus gives to the smiters. We'll look at more the sufferings of that in just a moment. But he's giving his back because it's indicative of what man has done. That man who was created with his face toward God, in allegiance to God, then chooses to turn from God and turn his back onto God. This is what Adam does, isn't it? When he's in the garden and he knows that he has rebelled, he, he flees, he runs. He has sought for Adam, Adam, where art thou? But, but Adam has turned his back, he has run away from God, and so it is for us. We turn our back on God. And this, this is symbolic then of, of the, the suffering that we should endure because of this. You, you have it, I think, illustrated for us in Proverbs 10, 13. A rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. A rod is for the back. The one who's void of understanding is always turning away from the truth. Turns away from the truth. And so as he turns away from the truth to bring him to his senses, there's a rod for his back, so to speak. In Psalm 129, verse 3, is prophesied there, the plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. We'll see more of that in just a moment. But you see, I think then, this, this depiction of Christ giving us back because men by nature turn their back on God and He is having to stand in that place and endure the suffering, the rod on His back for us who are void of understanding. But also He gave us face to suffer because we turned our face to sin. We turned our face to sin. You see it again, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. There is this turning of the face, the cheeks to those who are afflicting his face, as we'll see in just a moment, and hiding not his face from shame and spitting, the, the, the animosity that comes towards Christ even in the form of their spittle. 
we have turned our face to sin. This is man by nature. We turn our face towards sin. We, we turn our back on God. We turn our face towards sin. So that both sides of us are guilty. I mean, you see this come out, this, this twin guilt come out. If you turn for a moment to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, we'll read from verse 12. Jeremiah 2, verse 12. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for, in other words, let creation be stand and be stunned at this reality. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've turned their back on me. And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've turned their face toward things that cannot save. Give themselves to sin. Here you see it then illustrated in the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. The back has to be given to the smiters. His face also is buffeted and spat upon because this, this illustrates for us the entirety, that there's, there's nowhere you look at man and see something redeemable. Our very anatomy in how we are described in terms of the way we turn from God and how Scripture illustrates it for us is we turn our back on God, we turn our face towards sin, we commit two evils. Because we don't just turn our back on God and leave it there. In turning our back on God, then we pursue that which God hates. Now, <laughs> This is the case for us all. Every single person here is guilty of this. Those of us who are Christians, we have acknowledged at least some degree of it, and that's why we've turned to Christ. We need this substitute. We need one who voluntary, in a voluntary way gave himself. He might make amends for us. So our Lord takes the body that was given to him, fashioned for him in the womb of the virgin. He presents it for this suffering. Remember the language he used in John 6, that occasion where he had the previous day fed the 5,000. And he begins to instruct the multitudes surrounding him. In John 6, 51, our Savior says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The bread that I will give is my flesh, his body. Men will reluctantly give up their riches. What about their very life? Christ, as he states in John 6, 51, aligning with Isaiah 50, verse 6, this is not a passive offering. I gave my back to the smiters. 
The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Later on, as no doubt you're aware, in John 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, as verse 18 says. So this is the person smitten. God made flesh, given a body. The body then is abused from every angle, representative of the entire corruption of our humanity. Then secondly, the part is smiting. The part is smiting. Going back to Isaiah 50, verse 6, I give my back to the smiters, the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Who are these smiters and the them? This translation has been challenged. Instead of plucked off the hair, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, translates it as blows to the face rather than the plucking, the removal of the hair. And part of the argument for that, of course, is that there's no explicit New Testament reference to the removal of the beard of the Lord Jesus. I, I was reading the text, the original, and I was looking at other translations and wondering, you know, is there something to this? But I, I think it's right. I can't see any other way of translating it. I can't see any other way of accurately reflecting what the text says in Isaiah 56, that there is this balding of the face seems to indicate then the removal of the hair. So what do we do with the fact that there's no reference in the New Testament that tells us this is precisely what they did? Well, immediately I thought to myself, well, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Because there are details in Psalm 22 that depict Christ on the cross that no doubt happened that are not explicitly revealed to us in the gospel accounts. Which tells us even more and argues for us even more why you need to get out of your New Testament and read the Old Testament. There are details there in your Old Testament you must be acquainted with. They, they teach you the things concerning Christ. This, this is what we know our Savior did when He was speaking to, on, to the two on the road to Emmaus. And he, he opened on to them the Scriptures and taught the things concerning Himself. That wasn't the New Testament. That was the old. Beloved, you have to read the Old Testament Scriptures. And you have to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. And it would be nigh impossible, given certainly the length of the New Testament, for it to fully contain for us everything true about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is meant to be read. The understanding is that we're going to read that too and see more. And have more light shed on the experience of the Son of God. So we need to read it. I just say that to those of you who may ignore it. There must be familiarity with the Old Testament. I mean, you think of what, what Paul wrote about Timothy. It's coming to mind as well. When, when he writes concerning Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, that are able to make thee wise unto salvation. What salvation? That's through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And those Old Testament Scriptures, those Scriptures rather, the Old Testament, the scriptures that made Timothy wise to salvation, boys and girls, as he was raised in a home with a God-fearing mother and grandmother, he was put 
What was given to him was the Old Testament scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures made him wise to salvation that's in Jesus Christ. This is why then you shouldn't switch off when you're reading the Old Testament. You need to be familiar with it. That's why we encourage our Sunday school teachers in their they're familiarizing you with the Old Testament Scriptures and showing you the Lord Jesus Christ, which I know many of them endeavor to do. So I think the text is right, that we are given here something further of the experience of Christ. And we're going to read some of the text in just a moment, where the Savior in His buffeting before men, they're tearing out the very hair from His face. It's a form of shame. It's a way of mocking, deriding. You have that language, the Gospels are replete with that kind of language, that they're not just showing anger toward Christ, they're mocking Him, deriding Him, making Him out as if He is nothing. And one of the ways to bring shame to a man in that culture is pull out chunks of his beard, shave his beard off. So who are these, these smiters? I gave my back to the smiters My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. First, we consider the Jews. Go to Luke 22. I want you to follow me here in the Scriptures. I want you to see these texts. This is your Redeemer. And as we read these, I want you to see He is doing this because you're you're a sinner like, like those who are performing these acts. In other words... They're representative of you. As you see their anger, their resentment, their mockery, as you see their treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ, see yourself. You don't stand in a place of innocence. You stand in a place of guilt. You would be doing this, but for the grace of God. Luke 22, verse 63. Here we have the Jews in the way they're treating the Lord here in their invalid court. The man that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face. Let me just pause there. I'm not an expert when it comes to martial arts and boxing and fighting and so on. But I do understand, I do understand that it tends to be the punches you don't see that knock you out. If you don't see it coming, those are the ones that tend to knock you out, KO you, whatever. They're blindfolding him. He can't see When they blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? Many other things blasphemously spake they against him. These are the Jews. Go to John 18. You see more. John 18. 22. Again, you see from verse 19, he is before the high priest. 
22. When he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Not only smiting him, but spitting upon him. Go to Matthew 26. Go back to Matthew 26. Again, you see from verse 65, Matthew 26, 65, the high priest is there, just so you're, you, you see the scene. We're not he's still before the Jews. Verse 66, what think ye? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? So Matthew adds the additional detail. They're spitting. These are the Jews. These are the religious. Never be surprised by the great crimes of the self-professed religious. But not only the Jews were the smiters, but the Gentiles. Go to Luke 18. Luke 18. Pardon me, we've read Luke 18. John 19. Go to John 19. Pardon me. Luke 18, it refers to the fact that the Gentiles are going to be part of all of this. It says what they're going to do. But John 19, go to John 19, verse 1. Now the Jews have brought the Savior before Pilate, the Roman governor. He's a Gentile. John 19, 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Go to Mark 15. Back to Mark 15. I just want you to see, I, I need you to see these verses. What happened to the Lord Jesus? And keep in your mind, this is voluntary. I give my back to the smiters. When those soldiers came to arrest him, he spoke a word and they all fell. He could have ended it there. Never to touch him. He had avoided them for three years. Now he is giving, he's giving himself to this. Mark 15, verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, 
Let me just stop there. If you're being governed by the opinions of men, you're going to perish. Children, keep that in mind. If your allegiance to Jesus Christ is all about what do my friends think, if, if they become Christians and they're faithful to Jesus, then I will be too. But if they're not, then I'm not going to be. If, that, if you're governed by the thoughts and feelings of friends, you will perish. You will. You have to love the Lord yourself. And say like the little chorus, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Mark 15, verse 15. So Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas onto them, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band and they clothed him with purple and plaid a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. Mockery. And they also spat upon him. Go to Matthew, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 26, he has released Barabbas. He has scourged Jesus, as we've just read. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered onto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they applied it, a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. He volunteered for this. As parents, sometimes we're, we are pleasantly surprised when our children volunteer to take out the trash or some other chore. Christ volunteers to be treated in this way. And you may have noticed some of the language there regarding what the Gentiles did to him. That not just did they punch and beat him with a reed and spit upon him, but he was scourged scourged. The Baptist preacher Spurgeon, in describing scourging, he says this, he's writing in the middle of the 19th century, scourging as it has been practiced in the English army is atrocious. A barbarism which ought to make us blush for the past and resolve to end it for the future. How is it that such a horror, horror has been tolerated so long in a country where we are not all savages? But the lash is nothing among us compared with what it was among the Romans. 
I have heard that it was made of the sinews of oxen, and that in it were twisted the knuckle bones of sheep with slivers of bone, in order that every stroke might more effectually tear its way into the poor quivering, quivering flesh, which was mangled by its awful strokes. Scourging was such a punishment that it was generally regarded as worse than death itself, and indeed many perished while enduring it, or soon afterwards. He volunteered. He volunteered. But there's one other involved in the smiting. It's stretching this particular text a little, but I couldn't leave it out. This morning we were in Isaiah 53, weren't we? We looked at verse 3. But in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, we might conclude this was simply the observation of the ungodly, and they got it wrong. But verse 10 tells us, it tells us of the Father's involvement in pouring out wrath and punishment upon the Son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Christ volunteers to be mistreated by men in the most awful and degrading way. But he also volunteers to be afflicted by God. Now there are depths to the sufferings of Christ and how he has made sin for us and how the wrath of God is poured upon him that we, we really don't fully comprehend, but we are given little insights into what is happening, that there's something beyond mere outward suffering here when the sun hides its face and for three hours the entire earth is black. As the Creator made flesh, bears sin upon Him, bears judgment, bears wrath, bears the departure of the favorable presence of the Father in His life. And it's as if the very world created cannot bear to look upon what is happening. He endured the smiting of God. That cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Going back to Isaiah 50, one final 
thought. The plan satisfied. We've seen the person smitten, the parties smiting, the plan satisfied. When you read this text, there has to be a reason for it. There has to be a reason for it. Why should the one who rebukes at will the sea and dries it up and makes rivers a wilderness and clothes the heavens with blackness and so on, why take flesh and volunteer to be afflicted as we have described in detail for us? In Genesis 8, when the world is destroyed by a flood, and Noah and his wife and sons and their wives are the only ones to survive, Noah gets off the ark and he offers a sacrifice. And I think I've mentioned this before, but that's, that's one of the most costly sacrifices ever offered. Far more costly than even the thousands and thousands and thousands of creatures that Solomon offered at the dedication of the temple. Why? Because they had serious limitation of numbers. You don't offer for a sacrifice when you only have a handful of clean animals, pairs of clean animals. It was a tremendous sacrifice. But Noah did it. God was worthy. And in Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. But the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. It's as if those smitten in judgment through the flood become, as it were, they have to be smitten in order for another party to go free. They have it symbolized more fully in the offering that Noah gives, but the way it's worded, it's these every living thing was smitten by God. So that those following would not be And in some ways, that's a picture of the cross. That's what's happening. Christ volunteers to be smitten because that's what it's going to take for you to go free. He volunteers to endure this because if he doesn't, you perish in hell forever. Think of it. You're trapped in your humanity. Trapped. Utterly incapable of saving yourself. You can do nothing to impress God. Nothing to redeem your soul. You can't buy yourself into his good favor. You can't work your way into his good favor. You are trapped, utterly lost, spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing you can do. So God 
so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. And the son comes not reluctantly, not in some spirit or frame of reluctance or even despising what he's been called to, he, he embraces it. He comes in a voluntary frame. He sees the value of all those that the Father have given, has given to him. He sees the calling that by the offering up of himself to God, they go free. He sees the victory over the curse, over death, over hell. He sees it and he recognizes that his offering of himself, his suffering, his submission to this plan is the only way that you go free. The only way. Beloved, our lives being utterly incapable of obtaining favor before God ourselves, our lives simply then ought to become lives of gratitude, offerings of thanksgiving. I was saying to the young people in the Bible class just the other week, in Leviticus 27, you come to this final chapter of that book and it presents to us the whole topic of voluntary giving. They don't have to do these things. They're not obligated to do these things. And some of it is strange and odd, and you might ask, how did this all work out? But, but the main thrust of Leviticus 27, it closes with what, what I think is a wonderful expression, having seen all the sacrifices, having seen the Day of Atonement, having seen the work, the mediation of the priest, having seen all of that, the book closes with an expression of voluntary giving. And that is perfected in Christ. Voluntary giving. But it's set as an example for us to follow. That those redeemed, those Israelites brought from the bondage of Egypt, those Israelites brought through the Red Sea, those Israelites set free. There should be accounting for them. There should be allowance for them to, to not simply give the sacrifices that were necessary that by obligation they needed to give. But God is opening up the way, recognizing that surely if they understand what I have done, they will also want to give things in a voluntary way. The plan of God and the sufferings of the Son of God is to redeem our souls forgive our sins, reconcile us to God, put us into the family of God, seal us up so that we can never perish, neither can any pluck us out of his hand, to guarantee eternal redemption, eternal redemption. Life in the presence of God, eternity in perfect communion with God. These things are bought, paid for, in full. You don't contribute a thing. 
And should you die, should you die this night, tomorrow, or any other day in the future when, when finally your card is called, as it were, when you go, it will be entirely based on the merit of Christ. And you will never be in the inside of the caverns of the damned. You'll never see or experience for yourself the language of Scripture where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. You'll not know what it's like to be in that blackness of darkness forever. You'll have no idea. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, you will not experience it at all. Why? Because Christ took that place of suffering. Christ stands as a substitute. Beloved, are we not then obligated in some fashion to volunteer ourselves as lives of thanksgiving and praise? Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and so free. Young people, get this. Get it because your, your life, God willing, is ahead of you. Years yet to be lived. And you need to begin well in life. You need to begin well. And your concept of Christ and his work needs to come round. Not simply that he did what he needed to do. And I therefore get to live in the ease and enjoyment of knowing I'll never be in hell. You need to contemplate what he did voluntarily. Think about it. He gave himself. He came into this world and gave himself. Gave us back to the smiters. Gave his body to be torn in shreds for me. I turned my face to those who would spit in it. And we haven't even gotten to the cross. You need to understand that the Christian life is a life lived in gratitude. Where as I've said before, you repeat the language of the newly converted Saul of Tarsus and you say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What do you want? Don't play games. Your life is short as it is. Let's bow together in prayer. As we bow before the Lord, in just a moment I'll pray and close the meeting and you'll be dismissed. But as you close your eyes and you bow before God, God sees you. He sees your heart. He sees your faith and your trust. He also sees your unbelief. He sees you saying thank you to the Lord. He also sees you saying no to the Lord. If you're rebelling, 
resisting, I urge you, seek the Lord. Where you are right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. He is faithful. He will forgive. He will wash away all your sin. Lord, bless thy word. How thankful we are for a finished work. What relief it gives to this preacher to point sinners to an all-sufficient sacrifice by an all-loving Redeemer, Lord Jesus, look in mercy upon me, upon us all, and inflame our hearts to greater voluntary living, giving ourselves as lives of praise and thanksgiving Keep us in thy way. Deliver us from a love, a sinful love for the world. A compromise with the flesh. An allegiance with the devil. O God, deliver us. Save the lost. Restore the backslidden. Strengthen thy sheep and thy lambs. Bless our time of fellowship. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit of God be the portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.